0: So, uh, this morning, like I mentioned, we'll be walking through chapter 14 of the Confession. So this chapter deals with uh, the doctrine, the subject of saving faith. Although this chapter does also talk about a faith that is temporary as well, a faith that eventually withers and dies, the main theme of this chapter is the doctrine of saving faith. The faith that is unto salvation, saving faith, the faith that is unto salvation. When Pastor Ron taught on adoption last week, he talked about a popular idea in America, and I'm pretty sure other places as well, this idea that everyone is a child of God. The idea that God's not really upset with anyone. We're all good with God, and we'll all get to heaven eventually, uh, because God is the father of us all. Well, as we saw last week, as Pastor Ron taught, that's just not what You find in the Bible. It's it's just not true. Uh, Pastor Ron explained that's why uh, he explained last week why it's not true. And so I won't deal with that again this week, but there are uh, some overlapping things with what Ron talked about last week and what I'll be talking about this week with saving faith. As many would say, God is everyone's father, the Bible makes it clear that God is the father of some and not others. As many would say, all you have to do is have faith in something and you'll be saved, that's not a true statement either. Only the faith that completely abandons self, good works and all, and rests upon Christ will save. A true and genuine faith, saving faith. And so the question is, what is saving faith? What is true and genuine faith? Well, this paragraph, the first paragraph of chapter 14, rightly opens with this statement, uh, the grace of faith, the grace of faith. That's important for this paragraph. So let's read chap- uh, uh, paragraph one of chapter 14. Anyone who has a handout in front of them, feel free to, to read it for us. The grace of faith by
1: which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the word, by the same ministry, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the prayer, and other means appointed by God. Faith is increased and in strengthened. Right.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> so this paragraph starts by saying, essentially, remember that it's not you. It's God who has saved you. It's not you. As sure as you wake up every morning believing, know that the Spirit is the one sustaining your faith. It's the Spirit who's doing it. It's God who's sustaining you. As sure as it was God who has decreed from eternity past to elect, it is God who by his grace has saved the elect and regenerated them through the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God. Let me have someone read 2 Corinthians 4, 3-7 for us.
1: If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and
0: not from ourselves. Okay, thank you, Aaron. So <clears throat> this paragraph in the Confession starts by saying the grace of faith. Uh, essentially it's saying uh, this faith, the saving faith is given by God uh, who is gracious to call uh, many to himself. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul here And speaking of this, the light that is shown in our hearts points back to uh, creation and says, as God said, let light shine out of darkness. He says in that same way, in your heart, he has said, let light shine out of darkness. It is God who has said, let light shine. It is God who powerfully works in salvation. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, it also says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Again, the point is that saving faith comes by the grace of God. God is doing that work. Then Ephesians 2, 4 to 8 points us again to God and his mercy as he does what only he can do by giving his elect saving faith to believe. Ephesians 2, 4 to 8. Let me have someone read that for us.
1: But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places
0: in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Retour. So this paragraph goes on to say that this faith is. ordinarily uh, produced by the ministry of the word in paragraph one. In chapter 10 of the confession, we look at the effectual calling. That chapter reminds us that the spirit of Christ is the one who inwardly regenerates the elect. That chapter reminded us that the spirit ordin- ordinarily does this by the ministry of the word, the word of God. So whether it's heard or it's read, we see that this ordinary means uh, is articulated, actually, clearly for us in Romans 10, uh, 14. Oh, I don't let you read all that. That's okay. Romans 10:14, which says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? so the the normal, the ordinary means by which the spirit regenerates is through the preached word, and then Romans 10 seventeen so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. so the confession says ordinarily, um, and I think there it's uh, making a distinction between what ordinarily happens and Uh, those extraordinary circumstances, in the cases of uh, elect infants, or those who may have a um, mental um, disability. But ordinarily, it's through the means of the uh, preached word, uh, uh, heard or or read. Okay, the second part of this paragraph, uh, and keeping in mind what we just said um, in the first, by the same ministry and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper prayer And other means appointed by God, faith, saving faith, genuine faith, is increased and strengthened. So notice it doesn't say that faith is caused by these things or that these things must be done in order for one to be saved. So it doesn't put the cart before the horse. It says saving faith, um, as a result of saving faith, it's actually increased and strengthened by these other ordinary means of grace. The, uh, I think the, the thing that uh, man struggles with uh, naturally, <clears throat> so I just made a point that uh, it doesn't say, the, the confession in this paragraph doesn't say that these things cause saving faith, but in a sense they are uh, a result of, of saving faith. They increase the faith that's already there. Men uh, naturally have a desire to want to put the cart before the horse and say, um, taking the Lord's Supper is a means by which um, I am saved. Or being baptized is a means by which I am saved. Or any other number of things is a means by which I am saved. Men naturally want to sort of uh, pay their own way for, for salvation. But the confession makes a clear distinction here in saying that uh, the faith that is there already by God's grace, which he gives, is increased and it strengthens through these other means of grace. It's an an insult to to someone to go up to them and say, you know what, you're not really a good person. You're actually uh, a bad person and there's nothing you can do to... Uh, save yourself or fix your natural condition. No, nobody wants to hear that naturally. It's, it, it's an insult. Um, we we want to feel like we are good people. We want to feel like we can do something to earn salvation. Um, and I think that's why this paragraph starts with the grace of faith. In other words, it's not you. It's God. It's the Spirit uh, renewing you. <clears throat> uh, continuing... This paragraph states that these means increase and and strengthen one's faith. So really what we have here is a list of several means of grace by which the Spirit uses to increase our faith. So we have one, the ministry of the word. We have two, administration of baptism. We have three, the Lord's Supper, four, prayer, and five, it says, other means appointed by God. So those other means uh, would include um, reading and meditating on the word, uh, fellowship, and other things as well. Um, Even uh, suffering and trials are a means by which our faith is increased and is strengthened. And that list can go on and on with things that the Lord uses to strengthen our faith. But what the confession does here is list those things specifically mentioned as the ordinances of the new covenant. In other words, it mentions things that Christ ordained, which are a means of divine grace or a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality, such as baptism or the Lord's Supper. So the confession also mentions prayer and the word. So God uses these ordinary and common means to actually, again, strengthen and increase our faith. And I was working through this. I was thinking about a flock group we had last week at Pastor Jack's, um, and we were talking through Jonah, and I don't remember how we got on the topic, but we were talking about uh, the Lord's Supper as uh, a means of grace. And someone asked, um, do you think a a believer who's struggling with sin should take the Lord's Supper? And uh, my answer was, absolutely. Not only should they take the Lord's Supper, they must take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper for, as it, I think here is saying here, it increases and strengthens our faith. When we are grappling, when the believer, the true believer is grappling with sin, uh, Christ sets a table for him in a sense and invites him to come and eat. And he's strengthened and encouraged as he takes the Lord's Supper with the saints. And I believe his faith is increased and it it strengthens and it increases by God's power as he takes the Lord's Supper. So it is a means of grace along with these other uh, ordinary means of grace. But continuing here, uh, the faith given to the elect is indeed saving faith, but it's not always equally strong among each of God's elect. But however weak or strong we might find our faith, it can always increase and grow stronger. And again, how does this happen? By the means of grace. By the means of grace God Christ provides to his people, to his church. A couple of verses uh, to look at on that topic. You get a chance. Acts 2.42. You can just note them. Acts 2.42. Uh, 1 Peter 2.22. And Acts 2032. Okay, you can go back and look through those when you get a chance. Okay? <clears throat> so any thoughts on that before I jump to paragraph two? All right, let me have someone read paragraph two for us. By this faith, Christians believe to
1: be true. Everything revealed in the Word recognizing it as the authority of God himself. They also perceive that the Word is are excellent in every other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God in his attributes, The excellence of Christ in his nature and offices and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his activities and operations. So they are able to entrust their souls to the truth believed. They respond differently according to the content of each particular passage Obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and the one to come. But the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace.
0: Thank you, Scott. <clears throat> so this paragraph articulates that those uh, with saving faith, uh, spoken of in paragraph one, also believe the Bible to be God's authoritative and final word, God's authoritative word and final authority. So the faith that enables the elect to believe um, not only hears the gospel believingly, but also believes everything written in the word of God. The view of, uh, the, they view the word of God as God himself speaking with divine authority and all his commands, blessings, curses, and promises. In our Sunday School series on the Canon of Scripture, which we talked a a couple semesters ago, we talked about how we got the Bible, its inerrancy, and how the Holy Spirit attests to us that the Bible is the Word of God. So there are historical and archeological evidences uh, for the Bible, um, as Dan Wallace would say, an embarrassment of riches, even compared to any other ancient ancient literature or historic writing. But even those won't ultimately or essentially cause us to believe the Bible is God's divine word unless the Spirit opens our eyes to see and believe what is written in them, to believe that they are the inspired words of God. If you remember chapter 1 of the Confession, the chapter on the Holy Scriptures, in paragraph 5 it says, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scripture comes from the eternal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts in this verse uh, Thessalonians 2.13 I think we see that clearly let me have someone read this for us for this
1: reason we also constantly Thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is the word of God which also performs its work in
0: you who believe okay thank you so the Christian <clears throat> holds the word this as the word of God and it it's clear here when you heard it you received it not as you, you received it what you received from us and you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is. And what is it really? It's the word of God, which is actually at work in you, he says. So the Christian views the word, scriptures, as the word of God, not simply the words of men, but as what it really is. I love the way the middle of this paragraph uh, that you're looking at in the confession um, expresses how the Bible reveals to us the triune God. It says, It says, It displays the glory of God in his attributes, the excellence of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his activities and operations. So when you think about this, and then you think about the Bible and how it's different and distinct, what other human writing uh, through and through, what what other book through and through is anti-self-help and pro giving glory to someone else, something else. Uh, No other writing uh, is is like that. No other writing has a tone of, oh man, you're a worm. Look outside of yourself for salvation, for for help, for your greatest need. Uh, The Bible is distinct in that way from any other book. And historically, because it, it gives, it's a book that from beginning to end is about the glory of something that's not men. It's about the glory of something outside of men. Uh, it's about the glory of God and how God glorifies himself um, in earth and in creation through the salvation of his elect um, and even in his, his judgment. No other book articulates reality in that way. This book ought to be believed because it is the word of God. <clears throat> So the scripture bears forth the glory of God, and the study of God is the most soul-enriching study I think you can do. Your faith is strengthened and increases as you behold God and his word. So even as we looked at chapter 8 of the confession a few weeks ago, the study on Christ the mediator reveals even more of the excellency of Christ and his offices as we consider his Faithfulness to communicate the word of God as prophet, his sinful mediatory role as priest, and how as king he cares for and protects his people from uh, their ultimate enemy, sin and Satan. And scripture shows us the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who applies to us the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death. He works in bringing salvation, and he causes sanctification to excel in the life of the Christian. And you'll notice as you study the word of God, I know I've noticed as I study the word of God and the theology proper and all that you know, we have in these doctrines in the word, that I, my faith, it, it, is, uh, it is strengthened and it does increase. And I do uh, love the Lord all the more as I see him in his word. So as we open up the scripture and we behold the glory of God in his word, we grow in a love for the Lord and we are being sanctified. Uh, sin is being uh, weakened as we behold God's glory and his word. <clears throat> I had a friend uh, this, this past week. They uh, sent me a song that they found encouraging. And they said, man, this song, it just magnifies Christ. It's such a worshipful song. And it was interesting when I listened to the song, which I had heard before, but I really enjoyed it and I appreciated them sending it to me. Um, the song, it wasn't about <clears throat> how much I love the Lord and how strong my faith is in the Lord, um, which are cool. I don't have anything against songs like that. I, I do have something against songs like that. But this song wasn't primarily about me and my faith and love for the Lord. The song was actually about biblical theology, and it was tracing types and shadows from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and how God throughout redemptive history is unfolding his plan of redemption. And it was a worshipful song. It was a song that magnified Christ, right? It it, I was was strengthened and increased as I listened to the song about biblical theology, right? As we behold God in his word, we are strengthened, we are increased, we increase in our faith for the glory of God. <clears throat> and it is a means through which uh, God, uh, is a means that God is given for our increase in the faith. What was the and, name uh, of the song? It was called um, Priest Judge. <laughs> uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, the artist, Timothy Brindle. Uh, he has an album coming out called, uh, why am I plugging his album? It's a good album. Uh, <laughs> although we, we would disagree with him in some areas as reformed Baptists, as our brother is Presbyterian. Um, but it's a really good, uh, he has really good songs and I think the album is gonna be good. But the song was called Priest Judge. Um, and his album traces biblical theology. There's a plug for him. Maybe he'll pay me something for that plug. Um, okay, so moving on. My thought why I laid all that out is if you want to uh, make a Christian excited about their faith, Show them a big God as revealed in his holy word. If you want to remind them of the sweetness of fellowship with God, grab their chins, turn them to the word of God, and layer by layer peel back the excellencies of Christ in his word. That's how their faith will increase and be strengthened as they behold the glory of God in his word in the face of Christ by the Spirit. Let's read. Psalm 19. By God's providence, we actually read through this this morning at the prayer meeting. Um, But we're going to read Psalm 19, verses 7 to 17. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 17. So I just want to look here at how uh, the psalmist, how David views uh, the word of God. Let's see the type of view he has of of God's word. In verse 7, Psalm 19, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And I'm reading from the NASB. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commands of the Lord, the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did I say to 17? It's obviously not 17 verses here. Uh, To 14, I mean. But you see here how uh, David views the Word of God. It's precious, it's pure, it's righteous, it's clean. Um, And the believer views the Word of God in the same way. By faith, he believes all that is written in it and he's actually being conformed by it. Okay, moving on, uh, this paragraph also says that the believer, by faith, responds differently according to the content of each particular passage. In other words, by this faith, the Christian acts and responds to the different types of instructions found in the Bible. By this faith, the Christian yields in obedience to the commands. By faith, the believer trembles at the threatenings. Isaiah 66.2. Let me have someone read this for us. You can see it. <clears throat> Thank you. Him who is humble, contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. As you read the word, there ought to be some trembling. Uh, There ought to be a right uh, fear and reverence of God as we read his word. And by faith also, the elect embrace the promises of God. Hebrews 11, 13 says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. If we only have faith in this life and no faith or hope for the life to come, then we have no hope at all. Saving faith that believes in the God who justifies also believes in the same God who will glorify, which Romans 8.30 speaks of in past tense, actually. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And who has purchased these things for us? Or what is the object that our faith takes a hold of? The last sentence in paragraph 2 here answers that for us. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. And how do the acts of saving faith relate directly to Christ? It's by accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone by the grace of God. And what is saving faith? What is saving faith looking for? For Christ to do? What is it looking to him for? It looks to Christ alone for what? Justification, sanctification, and eternal life. So to use Sam Waldron's definition, faith is the believing abandonment of ourselves to Christ against all issues. Faith is the believing abandonment of every hope and the co-signing of our whole destiny into the hand of Jesus Christ. The Bible emphasizes faith as believing in, believing into, or believing upon Christ. In John 1.12, believing is tied to receiving Christ, and the opposite of that receiving Christ is rejecting him. Let's read John uh, 1.11-12. Someone can read that for us. He
1: came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, there are those who did not receive him, but there are those who did receive him who believed. So there's a connection here between uh, the receiving and the uh, believing. And in John six thirty-five. 64 to in, in John 6 64 to 65 believing is coming to Christ and resting upon the provision made for us and our salvation by him so John 6.35, someone can read that for us <clears throat> Jesus said to them I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not know whoever believes in me shall never worship okay thank you <clears throat> And then John 6, 64 to 65 says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who who were, who did not believe, and who it is who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. No one can come unless it's granted to him by the Father. No one will believe savingly unless it's granted to them by the Father. And finally, Acts 16.31 says simply, they said, and this is Paul and Silas talking to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter chapter, um, 16. They said to him, believe, believe in, believe on. Uh, In the Greek, believe on, believe upon, believe into the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your house, household. <clears throat> so the reality of what saving faith is as believing upon Christ also guards, guards us against a very popular, popular idea that saving faith is just a mental assent to biblical truths. <clears throat> Intellectual assent alone uh, will not save a person. An intellectual grasp of the Bible that does not lead us to the right knowledge of our natural condition and desperate need for a savior is vain. We just become slightly smarter people who are still dead in our sins. Intellect is important, but intellect must become heart conviction, which in turn takes hold of Christ as the object of saving faith. Um, a few more words on this paragraph before we jump to the last. All of the benefits of Christ's work, uh, his, the, the, his person work, are received by faith, but we take possession of them by virtue of the covenant of grace. Uh, that covenant, the covenant of grace, is rooted in the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the covenant made between the Father and the Son in eternity past. The covenant of grace is rooted in the covenant of redemption. The covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption applied and the covenant of works fulfilled. Christ fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works on our behalf so that we can be partakers of the covenant of grace and all its benefits, which are given to us through Christ. And what Christ has done and accomplished is applied to us by the spirit to the praise of God's glorious name. Okay. All right. Thoughts, any thoughts on that before we jump to paragraph three? Yeah, um, Different people read the Bible And uh, there are different ways to uh, apply certain truths Um, We may even have different interpretations of certain passages But uh, here here the confession is dealing with uh, saving faith And the one who is a believer uh, Believes all that is written in the word of God It's not saying that um, varying interpretations Means one is saved or not saved Um, or that we won't have different application of different things, it's just saying that the one who believes, believes the word of God, essentially. Any other thoughts? That's a good question, though. Just going to add
1: to that. It seems that um, the last sentence there, sort of answers that that concern, like if every Christian is interpreting the Bible differently, there is still
0: Thank you. That's helpful. It is. It's a focus that is on the personal work of Christ, uh, believing in the gospel as it's revealed to us in the Word. So, the Father is more powerful than Christ? Is the Father more powerful than Christ? Well, uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. and So, it's uh, one God, not three distinct gods. So, uh, there is uh, what we can call uh, an, an economic authority within the Trinity, but uh, no one person of the Trinity is uh, distinct in power from another. Um, it's, it's one God, so. <clears throat> Any other thoughts before we jump to three? And if you do have, if I had talked about something that, or you feel I didn't, didn't make clear, or you have a question or something, feel free to also toss it in the box. Okay, wanna jump down to paragraph three. Let me have someone read that for us. Thank you. So this last paragraph transitions to clarifying the distinction between true saving faith and the false faith of those who only believe temporarily. Those whose temporary belief shows that they were never genuine believers in the first place. Um, And 1 John uh, attests to that. The confession articulates that this faith, the saving faith of the elect, have various degrees of weakness and strength. <clears throat> Romans four nineteen to 20. Let me have someone read that for us.
1: Now, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated
0: his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. All right. Okay. Read that one too, Scott.
1: Yeah, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God.
0: Okay. <clears throat> now, in speaking of Abraham here, it says, without becoming weak in faith. Again, uh, the point I'm making here is that there are de- varying uh, degrees um, of, uh, of, of, of faith as we uh, are being sanctified. <clears throat> and then Romans 14, it says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. Uh, verse, verse 1. But not, to, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So the Bible also talks about uh, infants in the faith and mature in the faith in Hebrews 5. So we can see that there are uh, degrees of faith spoken about in scripture. (coughs) Faith can be weak or it can be strong and it can be anywhere in between. The true believer with saving faith will have a faith that at times is weak and at times is strong. Our faith ebbs and flows, but it's still saving faith. And that is really encouraging when you think about it. That the faith the size of a mustard seed that takes hold of Christ finds redemption and assurance of everlasting life. <clears throat> if you think about uh, what's somewhere that's really cold in America? Uh, Seattle. Seattle? Do, do they have lakes in Seattle that freeze over? I don't know. Minnesota. Minnesota, that's bad. So you think about Minnesota. It's a little parable. <laughs> you think about Minnesota. Um, Jack and Jill are in Minnesota and they come to a lake that they want to get to the other side of. This is not an original illustration. I took it from somebody and I tweaked it. So they want to get to the other side of this lake. Uh, Jill, let's say, has very little faith that she'll make it to the other side of the lake. The lake is vast. Uh, She can't tell if it's only frozen on the surface or frozen all the way through. So because Jill has little faith, She gets down on her hands and knees and she crawls very slowly across the lake to try to get to the other side. Um, But what Jill doesn't know is that the lake is uh, 20 20 feet deep and it's frozen from top to bottom. Doesn't matter that she has little faith that she'll make it across the lake. The object of her faith, the lake, is frozen through. It's frozen solid. It's a firm foundation. Let's see, Jack, her friend Jack is at the lake, too. Jack is just amped up because he has so much faith. He is fully confident that he'll get across this lake. Uh, the lake that Jack is at is not frozen through. There's a thin layer of ice on the surface, like when you put a cup of water in the freezer for 45 minutes. It has a thin layer of ice. You could poke it, your finger go right through. That's pretty much his lake. But he's fully confident. He has all this faith. He comes to the lake and he runs out in all confidence, it doesn't matter how strong his faith is, Jack's going through (laughs) the lake. He's falling into the freezing water of the lake, right? So the point of that story is to say that great faith uh, that takes hold of air and uh, little faith is, is always and will ever be distinct even from little faith that takes a hold of the object of the person and work of Christ right there's a distinction between those two <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> great faith take take great faith that takes a hold of air um, on, on the other end of that even is the same as false faith that only claims to take hold of Christ that only claims to take hold of Christ Neither of those are saving faith. Okay? I hope that was helpful. If it wasn't, write it in the box and let me know and I'll change it. So continuing. Weak and small faith is still different in kind or nature from those who seem to have true faith, but end up being shown to be temporary believers. Even small saving faith is completely distinct from false faith. The paragraph goes on to say that the faith of the elect is different in kind and nature from temporary believers, but the faith that all the elect have have been given is the same kind of faith. And what kind of faith is that? It's saving faith. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 1 says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have that slide now. The same kind of faith that the Apostle Paul was granted by the Father is the same kind of faith given to the elect. The same kind of faith that King David was granted by the Father is the same kind of faith given to the elect. The same kind of faith that Mark and Mary and Peter the Apostle were granted by the Father is the same kind of faith given to the elect. And what kind of faith is it? It's saving faith distinct from false faith. And so a question um, that we can ask to sort of help us better walk through what this paragraph is communicating is, what is the character of the temporary believers faith? What is that look like. Uh, Sam Waldron in his commentary on the 1689 is helpful when he says the commitment of such people with false faith is phony and cannot lead to a valid lasting and true walk in the way of Christ. Commitment is the test of conviction. If you say that you believe the Bible you live you your life must be radically altered by its truth they will lead a whole-souled commitment to Christ as Savior and Lord. If they do not, their faith is a sham. He goes on to say, it is not enough to smell, admire, or talk about the gospel meal, and I love this illustration, but we must eat it. Otherwise, it will not save us. Faith also involves a personal relationship with Christ, he says. It is entrusting ourselves to another person It is entrusting ourselves to Christ's protection and leadership. The distinction between true faith and false faith. Now, let's see what God Himself says in His Word about those who believe temporarily. Now, I'm just going to sort of move through these. You can note them and follow along in your Bible if you'd like to, but they won't be on the screen here. First, Matthew 7 21. So again, we're sort of trying to get an idea of what that false faith looks like. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness so there's a profession with the lips but there's a practice of lawlessness a practice of wickedness let's turn over to matthew 13. matthew chapter 13 verses 4 to 9 Matthew 13, verses 4 to 9. It says, I'll start back at verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seeds that fell on, I'm sorry, that fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. Verse six, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yield a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now let's uh, parallel that with verses 18 to 23, <clears throat> which is basically the explanation of that parable. Jesus says here, hear then the parable of the sower. Here it is. Let me explain to you what I meant when I said that. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So he explains it. Verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but, it, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom a seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some, a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So he explains the difference in this parable between those who hear and believe and those who hear and appear to believe, but have no root in them. They fall away. <clears throat> Now, let's jump to another passage. We actually see this uh, live in action in the Bible, um, and we see it uh, happen to a man, and it's a, pan- it's a man that Paul at one point called his fellow co-worker, and that man's name is Demas. Well, let's turn to Colossians 4.14, <clears throat> and we'll read that alongside uh, a passage in 1 Timothy. Colossians
1: 4.14.
0: Colossians 4.14 says, it's just a short one here. Uh, Paul writing says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends his greetings and also Demas. So Demas uh, apparently was with the apostle Paul and others as he uh, planted churches and ministered the gospel. But if you read that alongside 2 Timothy 4.10, it gives you, I think, a peek into uh, a man who really was uh, the soil or the the hard ground in Matthew 13. 2 Timothy 4.10, speaking of the same Demas, I'll start at verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, same Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me." And so you see here in Demas, uh, someone who was in love with this present age and who has deserted uh, Paul, right? It's it's a real-life picture of Matthew 13. And then I'll read one more, uh, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, 1 to 12. So again, I want to make a distinction here between uh, saving faith and false faith. Hebrews 6, 1 to 12. We'll probably close with this. Yeah, We'll, we'll close with this. So starting at verse one in Hebrews six, <clears throat> he says, therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead works and of faith towards Christ of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those, so there's a transition from we, us to those, who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it, and drinks forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Verse 9, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So, Hebrews 6 lays out those who, I think, are the same as we see in Matthew 13, having received uh, the word, but having no root in them, have fallen away. Now, at first glance, the language here is so strong, you would assume I think that, well, this has to be a believer who's genuinely saved, but then uh, he falls away. But he was saved, but now he's not saved. The language is very strong language, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think it's someone who's uh, saved and now is not saved. It's someone who was never saved in the first place. And if you look at the language of Hebrews 6, uh, he goes from language like us and we, and then he transitions to those who do these things. Then he transitions back to, but of you, I am sure of greater things. And so there's a transition from those who have genuine believe, genuinely believe and have saving faith and those who appear to have had saving faith but fallen away and those, again, who have saving faith. <clears throat> Very helpful commentary on this. Hebrews. Richard D. Phillips, if you don't have this, you should pick it up. This is actually a gift from Pastor Ron. Thank you, brother. Um, you have served me well this day. Um, but he, he lays out here, I think, a distinction between those with saving faith and those without saving faith. <clears throat> I have more here that I won't be able to get to for the sake of time. I'll stop. But in this, uh, in this chapter on saving faith, <clears throat> uh, the major themes are that uh, God is the one who is saving He's the one sustaining you. It's not you. God has done this miraculous work of um, drawing you to himself. That faith increases and is strengthened as we attend to the means of grace. Um, If you're discouraged and you don't want to uh, come to service, get up and come to service. If you are discouraged and you feel like uh, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with sin, take the Lord's Supper. Attend to the means of grace that your faith may increase and be strengthened. And then lastly here, Uh, There's a distinction between saving faith uh, and faith that appears to be saving faith of those who fall away And we have to be uh, mindful and careful as we encourage one another That we don't assume that someone is an unbeliever because they may be struggling with assurance of their faith Uh, It takes wisdom and discernment to come alongside people um, to encourage them and I I know the struggle Uh, one side of you doesn't want to Um, give someone who's not a believer false assurance, but the other side of you really does want to come alongside the true believer and say, look to Christ. Uh, Hebrews lays out over and over, uh, the writer of Hebrews wants his um, uh, listeners, his readers to know uh, you should have full assurance, be encouraged in full assurance of your faith. Um, And so as we try and discern that, we just have to be mindful and careful how we come alongside one another. But Although it wanes and it waxes and it ebbs and flows, that chart that Pastor Ron pointed out last week, that sort of up and down, but progressively up, uh, the down in that is always you, and the up in that is always Christ, it's always God sustaining you. Um, So be encouraged by that and uh, continue uh, in steadfast hope in Christ um, and saving faith. So that's all I have for us uh, this week. Next week, we'll jump to chapter 15 of the confession. Let me pray.